Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to please open them to Matthew chapter, chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And we'll be reading verses 27 through 38. So Matthew 27, verses 27 through 38. If I get someone to close the door, the, the light's reflecting in real bright. Thank you. Oh, as I was uh, looking around this morning, it was uh, wonderful to, to uh, see and hear everybody singing. Wonderful morning. Um, now, as you're, uh, as you're turning to Matthew 27, uh, I want to briefly say something first about one of the people who was there at the crucifixion, and his name is Simon of Cyrene. We're going to read about him shortly, but uh, we're not going to say more about him than this. He is the one, as you probably know, who carried the cross of Christ. And he and his sons, soon after, became believers. And Paul greets them in both Acts and the book of Romans. So you are aware of, of the story of Simon of Cyrene and his sons, Rufus and Alexander. But I want you to see the day here through his eyes just for a second. He's traveled to Jerusalem for a festival. He's traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But now his entire day has been ruined. A Roman soldier conscripted him to carry the cross of a criminal out to the place of execution. Now, if you were in his position, what would you think? If you were in the position of Simon of Cyrene, maybe you're downtown, maybe you're on your way to get groceries, maybe you're on your way to church, and you run into a crowd. You see a man beaten and bloodied, dragging a heavy wooden beam. Police officer stops you, calls you over, points to the beam and says, You, come, carry it to the place outside of the city. If you reject, if you object, you refuse, it's beatings or prison or worse. And so you oblige him, and for almost a mile out of your way, you carry this wooden beam. You're going to be happy about it? You're going to say, oh, what a, what a pleasant surprise today? Or are you going to grumble and complain and be angry because now your day is ruined? I'm sure that's what Simon thought, because I'm pretty sure that's what everyone would think. It was a terrible inconvenience. He was ordered against his will. He would have been covered in the sweat and blood of, as far as he knew, a criminal. He was sore from having to carry what, a, a beam that weighed at least 100 pounds, probably more. And now, having done this, he was a mile at least away from where he needed to be. His children, Rufus and Alexander, with him are tired and hungry. He's going to be late, certainly, for whatever he uh, planned to go to. And now his entire day has been upended. But what was the result? Sometime shortly after, Simon became a Christian along with his entire household. And not just Christians, but they became leaders in the early church. Now, he didn't know it or realize it at the time what was happening. He didn't know what was going on there outside of Jerusalem. He didn't know that it was going to be his salvation or that he was carrying the cross of the long-awaited Messiah. But when he found out, and that happened, all of the resentment he may have had for having his day ruined, well, actually, the entire day became a badge of honor for him and for generations, Simon of Cyrene would tell others with pride what he had done. He would tell them, let me tell you about when I carried the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was, in that moment, a time of trouble and embarrassment and terrible inconvenience for him, became the most important and most significant, uh, even the crowning moment of his life. If you were to ask Simon of Cyrene, what was the greatest thing you've ever done in your entire life? He would look back and say, I was the one who carried the cross of Christ. And what was a trial for him, God 
turned it into a moment of great rejoicing and glory and honor for Simon for the rest of his days. And that's how God works. He turns your greatest difficulties and challenges into your most significant moments of transformation and even joy if you believe Him. And that's a minor point considering our passage this morning. This passage that deals with the cross of Christ. So let's look to Matthew 27, 27 through 38. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters of the praetorium, and they gathered around him the whole cohort, and they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him... They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two other robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would show us the unsearchable truths of Your Word this morning. Lord, Your Word is deep and it is wide. And I pray that it would find a home in us. And that, Lord, You would use this, Lord, what we read about, to change Your people. To help them to understand who they are and what You have done that Your Son would get glory for His name, that You would get glory for giving Him. Lord, we have dull hearts to understand such things. But I pray that You would magnify Yourself, Lord, that our resistance and our hard-heartedness would be overcome, and that we would glory in our Redeemer. Help us this morning, Lord. We look to You with open mouths, to taste and see that Your Word is good. Feed us from Your Word. Move by Your Holy Spirit. Help me to preach. Help us to hear. And it is in Your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. Crucifixion. It's one of the most painful methods of killing a man ever devised. In fact, the Romans thought it so terrible it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. The, the only exception to this was by a direct order from the emperor himself. The Roman senator and writer Cicero called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He said, it is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one, sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the words for such an abomination. Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind and his ears and his eyes. Only someone who would witness such a cruel and agonizing execution could speak of it in this way, could understand how hideous it was. Uh, the cross, it did not kill quickly. It was used to slowly suffocate its victims over the course of days. The hands were stretched out in such a way that it forced its, its, its diaphragm, the victim's diaphragm, to stretch so that the executed person was not able to breathe. And the only way they could inhale was by lifting themselves up by the nails in their hands and feet to gasp for breath before slumping back down into the tortured position. This was only made worse by the humiliation of being crucified naked and having been whipped or scourged beforehand, 
The prisoner was, was flagellated with a, a whip, a cat in nine tails it was called, leather straps with bone and metal and glass and whatever else would tear flesh from the body embedded in its strands. Those condemned to die this way would often die from exhaustion or blood loss, suffocation or infection, shock, heart attack, dehydration. Animals would come down sometimes and eat them or any combination of these things. In fact, the pain was so great that the Romans had their own name for it. It was a kind of agony unlike any other. Excrucio, or of the cross. In English, excruciating. The word excruciating means the pain of the cross. It's one of, if not the bloodiest, most gruesome, most painful and degrading ways to be killed in all of human history. However, none of these torments are made much of in the Gospels. In fact, in the passage we just read, the crucifixion is mentioned only in passing. It says, and when they had crucified Him. The details of Christ's sufferings in all of these Gospels are sparse, all four of them. And Matthew, in fact, gives us the most detail. Not much is made of the physical horrors. You say, why is that? Why, why are the Lord's sufferings that are often so enthusiastically uh, given out that, that disfigure so much preaching of the cross so that sermons become narrations of the passion of the Christ? Why is there so little mention of these things in the four Gospels? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever read them and said, the, the emphasis doesn't seem to be where I would place the emphasis? Well, it's not because everyone alive in those days would have known what crucifixion was like. Many of Matthew's readers would have never seen a crucifixion. It's not because it's unimportant. Certainly you know of the crucifixion's incredible importance. It had to be a bloodied sacrifice. So why? Why is so little attention given to the actual physical sufferings of the Lord Jesus? And the reason is because the, the reason that the emphasis is not on the physical sufferings is because the physical sufferings are not the reason why Jesus was on the cross. It's not the reason why the Lord was sweating drops of blood in the garden beforehand. And it isn't even the reason why you and I are saved. You're not saved because the Romans and the Jews mocked and mistreated Jesus. And you're not saved because they put a crown on His head of thorns and wrapped Him in a scarlet robe. You're not saved because He was rejected by His own people. And you're not even saved because they nailed Him to the cross. The act of crucifixion as necessary as it was, it was not what saves anybody. I mean, you think about it. Think about it for just five minutes. Jesus is there in the garden, sweating drops of blood, trembling because of what is about to happen. Do you think it's the nails and the wood and the whip that He's afraid of? Even though many of Jesus' own followers died on a cross in the same way, or worse ways. And they didn't do it trembling in fear, sweating drops of blood, but singing hymns of joy and praising God. What's happening at the cross of Christ? And the reason, the sole reason, why you or me or anyone else will ever be saved is because while Jesus Christ was hanging on that wood, our Lord was cursed by God. He became a curse. And everything that Matthew says, everything that Matthew is writing here points to that fact. He wants us to understand that there is a lot more happening here than just the execution of an innocent man. I want you to think way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. It marks one of the darkest days in all of history. 
It's when Adam and Eve, mercifully created and endowed by God, turned against Him in cosmic treason to dethrone Him and replace Him. That's what they were tempted with. The the temptation wasn't eat the fruit. The temptation was become like God. And they listened to the voice of the devil over the command of God. And they reached out for what they thought would free them to replace Him. That's been the story of sin ever since. Because all sin, all sin at the core is a warped and a sinful desire to be like God. Not to be like God as the Christian wants to be like God. We desire to be like God in His righteousness. To be like Him as sons. To bear His image rightly. But sin twists that into a desire to be like Him on His throne. Not with Him on His throne, but to replace Him on His throne. It's a desire to be free of God and become our own gods with no one to tell us what to do. No one to tell us what is right and wrong. No one to hold us to account. And nobody to tell us the truth if it disagrees with us. That's what the first man and wife reached out for. That's what they wanted. Freedom from God by becoming gods. Adam was the earthly king of all of creation, ruling as God's viceroy. He was already like God. But it was not enough to be like Him. He wanted to become Him. He took the fruit and bit. He didn't become more like God. He became like the devil. And after his rebellion, he was cursed and cut off, exiled from the paradise God had made. And he and his wife and all of their offspring were sent away and God curses the snake and the woman and the man and the woman. Her curses, pain and childbearing. It's going to be painful to bring children into the world. The snake is cursed. He's going to be crushed. And to the man, his labor is cursed. His work is cursed. It becomes a difficult thing. And one of the things that will make his work difficult, and the most prominent of those things mentioned in Genesis 3.18, the the earthly emblem and sign that that his work is cursed, that he is cursed, is God says, I will make thorns grow up and fill the land. Thorns are the earthly emblem of Adam's cursedness. And in Matthew 27, 29, Jesus is crowned king. But he is not crowned king of the Jews. And he is not crowned the king of kings. But he is crowned with a crown of thorns. He is crowned as the king of the curse. And he is treated as a cursed king. He is stripped naked. If you remember the first thing Adam and Eve realized after they had sinned, they were naked and were ashamed. And in the Bible, public nakedness, being, being exposed like this, is always a shameful thing for someone to endure. When Isaiah prophesied against Israel for her idolatry, part of that curse would be that the nation would be stripped naked and left for all to see. It was a humiliating thing, a, a degrading thing. It was one of the ways that God punished the shameful was to put them on public display. And Christ here is being humiliated in this way. When they robe Him again, it's not with royal purple, but scarlet. The faded cloak of a Roman soldier. The color Isaiah identifies in Isaiah 1.18 with sin. He is wrapped in sin like scarlet. They give him a reed, a hollow stick for a hollow king, a stick to the one who is destined to rule with a rod of iron. And they mock him with their worship. They bow down and they laugh and they spit in his face. One of the things that would make you unclean in Mosaic law was to have somebody unclean spit on you. The Gentiles to the Jews were considered unclean. And this whole torturous experience It's not just Him being treated badly. It is the Lord being shamed and insulted. This is a a defiling thing. The Lord is being defiled by these Gentile Roman auxiliaries. The Lord is cursed. He is defiled. He is insulted. He is shamed and disgraced. 
He is being crowned as the king of sinners, as the king of all who are condemned to die. And he's not being crowned ultimately by men, but by God. And he's not being crowned as those condemned to die by men, but by God. And it's this, condemned by his Father, cursed, that made Jesus Christ tremble in the garden. It's not the wrath of Pilate that he was afraid of. It was not the injustice of the Jews or the cruelty of the Roman soldiers that filled his soul with fear. It was the wrath of Almighty God that would be poured out on him in this moment as he became the curse. It is almost impossible to understand what this means to become accursed by God. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the curse, and it's from God against man. And the curse is misery and death for their rebellion. In Leviticus 24, the one who curses God is taken outside of the congregation of Israel and sentenced to death, and he is stoned by everyone who hears him. The blasphemer is cursed. In Numbers 5, there are curses called down on the adulterer, on those who are unfaithful to their covenants. They are cursed. Elsewhere, in uh, those who forget the Lord and are ungrateful and refuse to rejoice for the good they have received from Him are placed under a curse. In Deuteronomy 21, it says how to deal with a rebellious son. It says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate in the place where, of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. The very things that Christ was accused of. Then all of the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. One who is cursed should have the whole city turn against him. And didn't they turn against Christ when they cried out, crucify him? In verse 22 of this same chapter, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, this includes a rebellious son. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Anyone hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Well, you have to understand, listen, the, the, the curse, the reason they're cursed, it's not because they're hung up on a tree. Being hung up on a tree does not mean, oh, now they're on a tree, so they're cursed. No, the reason they are lifted up is to show that they are cursed. And the reason that they are cursed is because they have committed crimes punishable by death. They have been blasphemous or rebellious and worthless sons or idolaters. And they have plunged into every kind of immorality with no sense of repentance or wrongdoing at all. This is what is happening to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He is cursed. He is cursed as one who sets up idols in secret and worships them, even though His only delight in the whole course of His life was to do the will of His Father. He is cursed as one who commits adultery and breaks His vows, even though He never once broke a single promise that He'd made. He is cursed as one who is incurably unclean and cut off from His people and His God, even though this is the one who is infinitely clean and made clean everyone who came to Him. He is cursed like a thief or a murderer, even though He is the giver of life. Cursed like one who blasphemes and takes the name of God in vain, even though He is the only one who ever took the name of God upon Himself rightly. He is cursed as a disobedient son, as a drunkard and a lazy glutton who rebels against all authority and against his parents and is utterly unrepentant, even though he was perfectly obedient to everything, even death, and beloved by his Father. He was the least deserving of anyone who has ever lived by far to be cursed, and yet, here on the cross, he is utterly cursed cursed to the fullest degree, and condemned. R.C. Sproul says in this moment, it was as though the heavens opened 
And God looked down at the Son upon the cross and said, God damn you. This is the word. Just as the heavens opened at His baptism and the Lord said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is now the word of the Lord to His Son on the cross. So what does that mean to be cursed? The only thing I can think of is Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, the curse is listed in its fullest measure. It's 50 verses long of a sustained promise of affliction to the one who is cursed. And God says to the lawbreaker and the condemned one, cursed will you be in the city and cursed will you be in the country. Cursed will you be when you come in and cursed will you be when you go out. Your bread baskets will be empty. Your wombs will be barren. The ground will be barren. The herds will be barren. Not only will there be no relief, but anything that promises relief or help, it will come right to the edge of fulfillment. To the place where you look and rejoice and say, my deliverance is at hand. But then it will fail you. And God Himself will send curses on you and confuse you so that your mind breaks. And everything you set out to do will be frustrated until you waste away. That's the price of forsaking the Lord. He will make sickness stick to you so that nobody can take it away. And not only will you be sick, but the land you rely on will be sick. The Lord will strike you with the wasting disease and swelling and pain in your chest. And the land will suffer drought and blight and mildew because of you. The heavens will be as bronze. It will no longer rain. And worse, the Lord will hear your prayers no more. You will cry out to me, He says, but I will not hear you. I will answer your cries for mercy with vengeance. And I will hand you over to your enemies. And even if you outnumber them, I will, they will humiliate you and strike you down. And your dead bodies will be food for the birds, and no one will chase them away. I will bring the plagues that fell upon Egypt upon you, and you will be covered with boils and tumors and scabs that cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion, and you will grope in midday as the blind grope in darkness, and yet you will be beaten and robbed and oppressed with no one to deliver you, and they will not even dare show you pity. The Lord says you will be married, but on the day of your wedding another will take your wife for himself. You will build a house, and on the day you take possession of it, someone else will claim it and drive you away. And all that you have will be taken before your eyes and given to someone who hates you. Your son and daughters will be enslaved by them, and you will cry until your eyes dry in longing for them, but you will be helpless to do anything. Cursed. God will oppress you and crush you continually until He drives you insane, and He will strike you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Sleep will flee from your eyes and you will find no rest anywhere that you look. You will be a proverb and a horror and a byword to everyone who hears about you. Even the little bit you manage to possess will be consumed by locusts. Crickets will have more than you. You will never lead. You will never be free, but will be enslaved forever where the Lord hands you over to the idols of wood and gold that you chose. All of these curses will come after you. And if you try and escape them, they will catch you. And if you fight against them, they will overwhelm you until you are destroyed. You will be hungry and thirsty and joyless and naked and will lack everything that you need. The Lord will put a yoke of iron on your neck, a yoke that you cannot lift, and will drive you into the ground. And everything good that you hoped for, every future plan, every bright light will come to fulfillment right in front of your face. And then the moment you reach out to take hold of it, the light will be extinguished and all hope taken away. Everything you trusted in will turn against you and become poison for you. Your cities will be besieged and you will be forced to eat even your own Children, your own offspring the Lord God has given you. The Lord will oppress you so vengefully that the man who is the most tender among you and the woman who is the most refined will eat human flesh and excrement because they did not see fit to acknowledge God and turn back to Him. The Lord will revoke every promise He ever made. And just as He took delight to do you good and multiply you, the Lord will bring you to ruin and cut you to pieces. You will be torn 
away from everyone you know and will never see them again. And everywhere you wander, there will be no rest. You will be without home and miserable. And even if you could have courage, God will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languished soul so that your life is always in doubt before you. Night and day you will be in dread. In the morning you will wish for evening and an evening for the next day because of the sorrow of your soul. Whatever your eyes have seen, you will never be able to get it away. You will never forget them. You will never be able to remove them from your mind and find relief. And misery will be your master forever. That is what it means to be cursed by God. It is a fate worse than death. In fact, the Bible says it makes death preferable, but death will never come. Those in Revelation will cry for the rocks to fall on them and hide them. Those in hell will search for death diligently, but will not find it. God's love will utterly and totally forsake the one who is cursed, and they will abandon him from all of his goodness, so that all that will remain is God's wrath and hatred and holy justice against them for their sins. Can you imagine living like this for all of eternity? This is your life every single day? Could you imagine millions of people living like this for all of eternity? Well, now you begin to understand what happens at the cross. All of this affliction, millions of eternities worth of this, were compacted into a few short hours and laid upon our Lord Jesus Christ. It's enough for one man to suffer this for a day. It's, enough, it's unbearable for anyone to suffer this for a million years. But take all of the millions who are saved, all of their sin, compact it, if you could, into a few hours, and lay that on the Lord. This is what is happening at Golgotha. Christ was lifted up only to be cast down to the lowest depths of hell imaginable. And you, you wonder, did He really go to hell? No. But whatever concept you have of hell, it would have been preferable to what he endured in those hours. So if you think this sounds terrible, I assure you, you do not even have the ability to imagine how terrible it must have been. Every sin, every idle word, the adultery and murder of David, your sin, every sin that God's people ever committed was laid upon him. If you wonder why would the Lord subject Himself to this? Why would He endure such a curse and even become the curse? He did it out of love for you and glory for His Father. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't for Himself. You, you understand this, don't you? That you and I... I mean, if we have any pity for Christ, don't pity Him for His suffering. We have any pity. The reason He was there was for us. And that you and I should have been the ones who heard cursed. And you and I are the ones who should have been cut off and taken outside and crucified under the wrath of God. We should have been the ones to have every hope stripped away from us and abandoned in our hour of need. We should have been the ones degraded and humiliated and torn apart and abandoned by God without any hope of redemption and left bloodied and nailed to that cross, cursed. That was for you. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. If you're moved at all by this and the unimaginable suffering then be moved rightly and understand it wasn't because of anything He had did that He was there, but it was for what you had done that He was there. And if you'd pity Him, do not pity the Lord. Do not have compassion to the Lord without remembering it is your sin that cursed Him. It is one thing to pity someone enduring terrible suffering. It is entirely something else to know that you are the cause of it. He is our substitute and died in our place. It was as though the curse was aimed at you, directly at your chest because of your sin. 
the bow of justice was drawn back and the fiery arrow of damnation was at full draw. And just as the arrow was loosed, Christ stepped Himself into the path between you and the holy wrath of God and was annihilated. He became our propitiation, turning God's wrath away from you. But not away from you to go off into the distance or into the ocean or into the sky, but away from you to go directly into Him. He bore our sins in His body. He suffered for sin, the just for the unjust. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He was made a curse for us. He was offered up to bear the sins of many. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the Lord has laid on Him the sins of us all. This is why Christ came to die. And then if you forget this, you've forgotten the cross. I mean, what, what good is it to know that Jesus suffered if you don't know why? And what good is it to know why if it's in some vague and general way? Christ didn't die so that we could have just good theology and academics. Christ died for you. For you. All the academics in the world won't do you any good at all if you don't understand as a foundation of the Gospel and the cross that He died for you, not for the world, in some vague, general way. Did He do it for you? For Corey? For Thomas? Did He die for your sins? Was it your sin that held Him there or someone else's? Or was it your place that He took? Do you believe that you deserved it? That was your cross and your crown and your curse that He became? the cross is ever going to have its proper place in your heart and in your thoughts, if you're ever going to be able to weep and rejoice, if you will ever be able or even begin to love the Lord Jesus, it's only when you realize and believe and understand that He is dying your death and taking your place, your place to the man, to the woman, to the child. If I could quote J.C. Ryle, he says, we may follow Him all through from the bar of Pilate to the minute of His death and see Him at every step, our mighty substitute, our representative, our head, our surety, our proxy, the divine friend who undertook to stand in our place and by the priceless merit of His sufferings to purchase our redemption. Was He scourged? It was that through His stripes we may be healed. Was He condemned though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted though we are guilty. Did He wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear a crown of glory. Was He stripped of His clothes? It was so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was He mocked and reviled? It was so that we might be honored and blessed. Was He reckoned a villain and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was He declared unable to save Himself? It was that He might save others to the uttermost. And did He die at last and that in the most painful and disgraced of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore and in His disgrace be exalted to the highest glory. Let us think about these things often and well. They are worth remembering. You're here this morning and you're forgiven and you're going to heaven and you have hope. You have access to the ear of God. He hears your prayers, has bestowed His love and forgiveness upon you. All of His promises and blessings belong to you. It is only because of the cursing that you deserve was borne by another. Strive to remember the price that was paid for you so that your appreciation and love and obedience toward Christ will not grow cold and so that you will not grow weary.
It's one thing for someone to give you patience. It's one thing for someone to give you food when you are hungry. It is something else for them to lay down their life for you when you were their enemy. Guard against forgetting this. And if you find that your love for Christ and obedience does begin to wane, then consider again who you are or who you were, a great and by all accounts irredeemable sinner. Consider what you deserved. Death and more than death. The cursing and hell unimaginable. Consider what was given for you. The blood of Christ, spotless and without blemish, worth more than every gold coin and diamond in the world combined. And how great a salvation you have received. When we think much of ourselves, we will begin to think less of Christ. But when we have high thoughts of Him and right thoughts of us, all things will be in their proper place. And lastly, learn from this. Learn to hate sin. Not just sin in general, but to hate your own sin with a great and a merciless hatred. John Owen says we ought to be killing sin every day. We ought to kill a, a, a sin or at least a portion of a sin every day. He says, if you find a sin in your life, grab hold of it by the throat and squeeze until it stops breathing. And when it stops breathing, squeeze a little more. Our hatred of sin should be so violent. Why? Because when you look to the cross and the cursedness of Christ, you are seeing the end result and the consequences of your sin. You see it all in Christ's suffering. It was our sin that demanded it. It's not your neighbor's sin. It wasn't sin in the world, but yours that He died for. You, your sin, are why He was made to suffer and feel the compacted misery of hell. And if you have any love and any compassion and any pity for the suffering Savior, let it be matched by a ruthless disgust for your own sin. Let it stir up hatred in you when you see the awful price that it demanded. And make no mistake, this is the price of sin. This is the price of rejecting God and refusing His offer of salvation. Every day, one day, every one will have to answer for this. And if you think your sins are great or little, how often are we tempted to think my sin is not that bad? My sin is no big deal. I want you to think of the most, the, the tiniest sin you may have committed. The smallest one. Look at the cross and see what you thought was of no account cost. Something so great as murder Something so small as every idle word. Our sins, it's difficult for us to imagine what they deserve. It's difficult for us to understand that they could only be paid for by the death of God's Son. That that's what it would take to cover them. And if you don't realize it today, one day you will. And if you haven't put your hope and faith in Christ... If you haven't reached out and gone to the substitute, the only name under heaven by which man may be saved, then you will be the one who is cursed. And everything that we read about will fall upon you. And not for three hours in the afternoon, and not for a day, and not for until you die, but for all eternity without remission ever. Billions of years will not be long enough. There are only two outcomes for every human being. Only two in the end. All die. Everyone dies. You have billions of examples of what awaits you. And after this, the judgment. And you need to know, will you be found in Christ 
Will you be found safe and secure? Will your sins be forgiven? Your adultery, lustful thoughts, sexual immorality, hatred, anger, rage, pride and self-pity, lying and slander, selfishness? Who will bear the judgment they deserve? You or Christ? God has graciously opened a door for salvation. One door, Jesus Christ. It's the only way anyone will be free, will be forgiven. Will you take it? Will you be saved? Will you be like Barabbas and have another take your place? Your stripes, your cross, your curse. Or will you be the one to die for your sins? Will you be the one to be cursed for all of eternity by God Himself with no hope of deliverance? Those are the stakes. Christ died so that you would be saved from sin's misery. The angels in heaven look on with wonder that God would even do such a thing. God Himself warns you by His Word what awaits you so that you would believe it and turn with fear and rejoicing and be saved. The church prays for you. You hear this morning, I'm telling you to repent and believe that you would be spared this end so that you would not be damned on the broad road with so many, but be delivered. Call upon Christ for mercy, for grace, and for forgiveness and be saved. Call upon Christ to take your place. Call upon the Lord. He is merciful and delights to give you His robes of righteousness and wash you and make you clean. Let's pray. Lord, what more could be said it is Your Gospel that has the power of salvation. I pray, Lord, that You would deliver. Lord, that You would save. That You would spare people, Your wandering lost sheep from this horrible end. That You would reach out with Your staff and hook this morning and bring them into Your fold, Lord. That they would know You. That You would give them the grace to see and open the eyes of the blind. That they would see what kind of danger that they're in. Lord, we know the terror of God and we persuade men that they would be saved. I pray, Lord, that You would make the persuasion effective. Draw, Lord, to Yourself. I pray for anyone here whose heart is under the conviction of sin. Lord, I pray that they would not resist Your Spirit, but that they would come to You. And I pray for anyone who is resisting that You would overcome that resistance. You have the key to every heart that You have made. Lord, You do not delight in the death of the wicked, but desire that they would repent and be saved. And Lord, that is our desire. Lord, grant repentance and grant them faith that they would see You and that they would love what You have done for them and that they would love You that they would be transferred from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from lost to found, from perishing to saved. Lord, work in Your people, in Your own people, those who have called upon You, that they would hate their sin with a holy hatred. Help us, Lord, to hate our sin more completely and more fully, seeing what it cost. Where else in all of history, Lord, can we see the horrible consequences of sin? The death of Your own Son is what it took to cover them. Lord, help us to see our sins rightly so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't treat them as a pet, as something we can control or hide away in a box. But Lord, that sin seeks to 
damn and curse us, seeks to destroy all that we love. Sin is no friend to anyone, Lord. Help us to hate it and to fight against it and to put it to death by the grace and power you supply. Help us to live holy lives before you. Help us to love you more. And I pray for anyone whose love grows cold, that your gospel would be the fire that warms their heart, the oil that softens the hard-heartedness, that, Lord, they would see what they deserved and where they were and what you have done, and you would renew their love for you today. I pray for the children, Lord, that they would see their rebellion as a rebellion against you, not just against their parents, but against you, Lord. And that they, Lord, would repent and turn to Christ, seeing the cost of their disobedience. It is terrible, Lord, more than we know. And I pray that you would have mercy on the children, that they would believe. Lord, for husbands who are not always gracious like you have been gracious to us, and wives, Lord, that you would be merciful to our families, that you would help us, Lord, to hate sin in the secret places, the sins that only we know about, and the sin in the public places that everybody sees, that by your cross we would have victory over them, and that by your cross we would have the power to war against them. And by your cross we would know that we are forgiven and that our justification is not in our performance but in your great grace. No good works could atone for sin. Nothing in our hands could we ever bring. But Lord, you have laid on your Son the iniquities of us all. And praise you, Lord, for you have. There was no hope for us. None. The most righteous of us carried nothing but filthy rags. Our hands were dirty and could not be made clean by anything we would do. But Lord, You have washed us and purified us and made us righteous as He is righteous by making Him a curse for us so that we who are cursed can now rejoice forever, blessed and loved in Jesus Christ. Thank You for Him, God. Thank you for sending your Son and for doing what none of us would do. Your love is so great. Thank you that you so love the world. You gave your only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. Thank you that when we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself by the death of your Son. Lord, let us be grateful. Let your sons all be saved, your daughters, your children, numbered in your church and brought in. Advance your kingdom today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.